moving right away through it. We're up to uh, chapter 49. If you weren't with us last week, last week we did something a little different. We had a representative from um, Christian Jewish Ministries come down, and uh, he did a, a Seder meal. And if you haven't got a chance to do that, I encourage you to get a copy of the CD or grab one of the messages online. They're on there on the website, and you get a chance to listen to it. It was pretty neat. And a big thanks to everybody that helped with that and helped get that set up. So, but back in our study here in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49, we're only going to do one chapter tonight because this chapter is just one of those what I call a nice cups of milk. You know, the Bible talks about how the basics of the faith are like milk. Now, I hate milk unless it's got a lot of chocolate in it, but for a lot of people that like milk, the idea of a nice cold cup of milk sounds very refreshing. That really sounds gross to me, but you get the analogy. It's nice and refreshing to go back. You're not going to hear tonight probably a lot of stuff that is brand new to you. It's salvation, but it's nice to talk about salvation. And I was thinking about this and I actually went and printed off the lyrics um, of the great old hymn. I love to tell the story. Verse 3, I love to tell the story, tis pleasant to repeat, what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. See, that's the thing is, if you're here tonight and you're born again and saved, to stop and think about the day or the time, the season that you got saved, that's nice. It's real nice. And what you do here in Isaiah 49, it's all about salvation. In this short little chapter, it's only 26 verses, the word salvation or savior is used three different times. The word restore, redeemed is used four different times. The whole point is we are restored, we're redeemed, we're saved by Jesus Christ. And this is why we are here, is to learn about this, to remind ourselves about this, so that way when you go into work tomorrow or you go into school tomorrow, you can tell people about Jesus Christ. That's our sole purpose for being on this world, is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're not spreading the gospel of Christ, what are we doing? And we need to be spreading it in our actions, in our words, and when God opens a door, to definitely take it. Because if this has blessed us, we want to bless others. As the rest of this verse says, I love to tell the story, for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. And you may work with somebody, you may live with somebody that needs to hear the gospel of Christ. And I hope this message tonight is encouraging to you to say, hey, look what he's done for me. Now I want to go out and tell people about that. So... This is a messianic chapter, for those like a little more detail, meaning this chapter is written from the perspective of Christ. A lot of this chapter is Christ speaking. Now, obviously, Isaiah the prophet was the one that was led by the Holy Spirit to put pen to paper when he wrote this, but it's written from the perspective of Jesus and his role as the Messiah. And it's also written from the perspective of God the Father speaking to Jesus saying, this is why I'm sending you as the Savior. So what you have here in Isaiah 49 is you have a little glimpse into heaven, if you will, of what God the Father and Christ the Son were talking about, about him sending, being sent down to earth. So, Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen, O coastlands, to me. Take heed, you people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. He has made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. He said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now stop right here for a second. What you have here, first off, to set the scene a little bit, verse 1. Who's he talking to? Listen, O coastlands, to me. Take heed, you people far away. Who's that? That's you and I. When you see that, listen, O coastlands. See, the Jewish people were a landlocked people. They did not like water. 
They were not known for being in water. They were not known for being seafarers. They did not do the water. So when you see a reference like that, listen, O coastlands, he's saying, I'm talking to people outside of Israel. I'm talking to the Gentiles. That's you and I. And it says, take heed, you people from afar. Afar from where? From Israel. So he's basically saying, listen up. And that's us. What are we supposed to be listening for? We're supposed to be listening from this point, verses 1 and 2. Jesus from the womb was brought here for one purpose, and that one purpose was to be the Savior of the world. That's why he was here. It just absolutely blows my mind. We just got done with the Easter season, and at the Easter season there's always this debate on what? Who was Jesus? Was he a good moral person? Was he something more special? Was he this or that? I tell you, Jesus was God that was sent down in the form of a man to die for our sins. I know that's elementary, but for some reason in this world we live in, that's been pushed off to the side. We're debating who he was when we're missing the whole point and mission of what he was sent for. Jesus is telling us here in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 49, is from the womb I have been called to be the Savior. That was my divine calling, that's my divine purpose. And there's power in that, because look at verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Now we don't see that a lot in the Gospels, do we? A few instances where Christ's mouth is like a sharp sword. See, Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is like a sword. So what they're saying is God's word is powerful. A couple instances in the Gospels where the word of Christ was powerful. When he got up and he told the storm and the sea be still, and it stopped. There's the time when he was about to get arrested and they said, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And it said, Everybody fell down and got knocked down. Power in those words. Now, we're not going to see the full power of God's word until if you study out the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, when Christ comes in the second coming, the Bible says he's returning with a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, I don't think there's a literal sword coming out of his mouth. I think it's talking about the power of God's word. And so the power of God's word is in his mouth because he is God. Real quick subnote on this. If you're ever sharing your faith or if you're ever talking about the Lord with people, use scripture as much as you can. Your words will return void, but God's word will never return void. The more I do counseling and the more I study with people, the more I realize just give them scripture. You can't go wrong with that. There's a power in that. It's like a sword coming out of your mouth. So we have this calling on the Lord. And if you will, the key verse of this calling is actually verse 6, where it says here at the end, I will give you also as a light to the Gentiles, that's us, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's the whole purpose of this chapter. Jesus is salvation for you and I. But I find verse 4 fascinating. Then I said, now who's the I? This would be the Messiah, Christ. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Now we don't think about that from that perspective, do we? That the Messiah is saying a lot of the stuff I did was in vain. If you look at the ministry of Christ, you would have to call the ministry of Christ a failure. When it came down to the end, when Christ died, of his 12 disciples, one betrayed him, all the rest fled, and at the end of his public ministry, at the end of his death, there was no ministry. Everybody gave up. Peter went back to fishing, Andrew went back to fishing. It was all a little bit in vain. But look what Christ says, though. He also sees the full thing. My just rewards with the Lord and my work with my God. He's saying, basically, it's in God's hands. Some of your translation says, I place it in God's hands. 
Now, the reason I bring this up is I'm willing to bet that some of you have shared your faith with people, you have witnessed, you have served faithfully in church, you have worked ministry after ministry, and you look back and you say, there's nothing. Nothing. These people I've talked to for years, no fruit. Nothing. That ministry I've worked on for years, no one has ever told me thank you. No one has ever told me good job. I've not seen a single piece of fruit come out of that. Nothing. Now, the question comes up is, can you say what Christ said in verse 4? I put it in God's hands. Sometimes you don't see the fruit right away. There was a situation just recently where someone came up and told me, hey, do you know that this person got saved? No. That's one of one people on my list that probably never would have got saved. And they got saved. And I said, that's great. That's amazing. And they said, yeah. He said one of the things that really blessed him was years ago, church, Harvest Fellowship, did this thing, and it really planted a seed. And years later, it really came to fruit. Now, if you would have asked me years ago about that thing we did, I would have said, man, nothing. No, no fruit came out of that. We threw a lot of seeds out. We did a lot of watering. Nothing. But the catch is you put it in God's hands and he makes it grow in his time. See, some of you right now have been sharing with somebody, you've been planting seeds, you've been watering, and there's no fruit and you're getting a little disappointed and you're getting a little um, frustrated. Or as it says here in verse 4, I've labored in vain. Boy, guys, if it's in God's hands, you just trust it that he's going to grow it in his time. That's a beautiful blessing. At the end of Christ's ministry, there is not much to be excited about. But you look now 2,000 years later, look at the fruit that came out of it. So what you see here at the beginning of this chapter, Christ is called, his whole purpose, his whole purpose is to come and die. And that's what we're going to talk about here tonight is verse 6. Is he's come for the Gentiles. He's come for us to be a light in a dark world. Now, we're going to talk here about what does that mean. But before we go on, anybody got any quick questions, comments about anything we've covered thus far before we move on to the rest of this? Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Ryan. How do we know that this is, uh, you know, speaking through the word of Jesus? Well, context is the main thing here, because when you're looking at a lot of this stuff right here, who else would this uh, fit and make into? You know, uh, Isaiah was not called to be the salvation of the people. And, and that's a very legit question, because sometimes you get into this Old Testament stuff, and you're like, okay, how do you know this is this and that is that? Isaiah was not called to be the salvation of the nation of Israel. And as we go through the rest of this, we're going to start finding out about how he is their salvation, um, how he is the one that saved them, he is the one that's come to do this. And some of these things that are going to be quoted here in a little bit, especially, um, getting ahead of myself here a little bit, verse 10 is quoted in the book of Revelation about Christ taking care of those that have died. So when you start comparing the scriptures here in Isaiah 49, especially to passages in Revelation, and there's also another passage here of today is the day of salvation that Paul quotes, both of those are quoting them in context of being Christ. So there's other verses in the Bible that line up here with Isaiah 49 that line up with what Jesus did and said. That's a real good question to ask, because sometimes you can start picking stuff out of here at the Old Testament. It's like, well, this is this and that's that. What's our basis for that? There always needs to be scriptural background. So there's two instances in here in the book of Revelation, also I believe in 1 Corinthians, where different passages are quoted the same thing of being in the context of Christ. Good question, though. Anybody else got anything they want to ask here before we move on? Okay, so what's he going to do? Let's jump ahead here to uh, uh, verse 9. Actually, we'll jump back to verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him who man despises, to him who the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers... 
Kings shall see and rise. Princes shall also worship because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, He has chosen you. So, I think verse 7 is really neat because what does it say about Christ? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Verse 7 says the same thing here. Kings and princes will worship. Right now, the name of Jesus is so defamed in this world. How many times have we talked about this out here? That when people curse, they use the name of Christ. Why? Because it defames who God is. No one ever says anything about Buddha or Muhammad when they hit their thumb. You don't see those words being bleeped out in movies. But the name of Jesus is so defamed in this world. And how many times have we said this? People you work with, non-believers, say Jesus more than you do. You're not saying it in a good context. So it's fascinating to me that there's going to come a time and a place, especially verse 7, where these kings and rulers and princes are all going to realize who Christ is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Well, what's Jesus going to do? Verse 8, thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you a covenant to the people. Now look what he's going to do. To restore the earth. See, that's the beautiful thing. This earth is cursed. Now, I love going outside. I love looking at creation. I love looking at nature. But this is a cursed earth. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when the curse is lifted? We think this place is beautiful now. Imagine Christ ruling and reigning like it says is going to happen in the book of Revelation. Imagine the new heaven and the new earth. So the first thing he's going to do is restore the earth. Second thing, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritage. Now, that's kind of a funky phrase there. But what it kind of means is God's going to set everything right. Now, I don't want to get on my Israel rant here tonight, but it always upsets me when they talk about Israel having land they shouldn't have, and they should, Israel should give land back to the former Palestinian state, etc. If you go back to the book of Genesis, God laid out what land is supposed to be Israel's. Israel doesn't have that land right now. One of the things that Jesus is going to do, he's going to give the inheritance to the Jews like they're supposed to have. Boy, the earth's going to be blessed. Okay, now for us... You may say, okay, well, what does this really have to do with us? Verse 9, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. He's going to set the prisoners free. Now, we've talked before that that doesn't mean literally going to CCNO and knocking down the doors. Is you're imprisoned. I'm imprisoned by what? Sin. Christ is going to set us free from that. And hopefully, I bet you some of you can give testimonies tonight of being set free from different things that you were held in bondage to. God is going to set us free. Next one, to show who are in darkness, show yourselves. God's going to pull us out of the darkness and into the light. I mean, seriously, you know people that aren't saved. They are walking in bondage of sin. They need to be set free through Christ. They're walking in darkness of life. They need to have the light of the world, Jesus, come into their life. This is what Christ came to do. What else is going to happen? Verse 9, They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst. God's going to take care of us. See, it says in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, a real quick question to ask you, and I'm asking myself this. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? I mean, is it something in your life where you say, Lord, I want to be righteous in you. I want to be pure. Does your heart break when sin gets the best of you? Does your heart break when you say, I shouldn't have done that? Now, this is not a legalism we need to throw on people, but there should be a part of us that hungers and thirsts for more of Christ. It happens a lot. I get contacted by somebody to say, hey, so-and-so is interested in church. 
I really think if you would contact them, whatever, maybe they'd come out. Now, I'll contact anybody. I'll call anybody. Give my phone number out to anybody. That's what we're definitely here to do. But this is the thing I've noticed. If somebody really wants to go deeper in Christ, they're going to go deeper in Christ. I spent years trying to make people go deeper in Christ. You can't. If they hunger and thirst for a deeper walk in Christ, you know what? They're going to do it. They're going to make the time. They're going to make the effort. Now, we're here to help that. We're here to encourage that. We're here to point that in the right direction. But ultimately, it has to start in their heart where they hunger and thirst for a deeper walk with Jesus Christ. If they don't have that desire, no one can give that desire to them. They have to want it. Now, what else happens? We're going to be protected. How are we protected? We'll look at verse 10. Neither heat nor sun shall strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them. That passage in verse 10 is again quoted in the book of Revelation, talking about part of the blessing of heaven, is we have this inheritance waiting for us. It's funny. We all enjoy today, right? Not too many people can complain about today. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, in about two months, you guys are going to be whining and complaining that it's too humid and it's too hot, right? Northwest Ohio, we have about a total of four weeks each year where it's really downright pleasant. There comes a time and a place where God says, there's just going to be beautiful. Neither heat nor sun shall strike them. And that carries, you know, I believe this whole physical connotation, but even more than that, the deeper spiritual realm. God's hand is on us, protecting us, watching out for us, meeting our needs like the sheep in verse 9, feeding alongside the road. God protects us. What's the result of all this? Verse 13, Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth. Break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Why do we have worship before we teach? Because there's always something to praise God for. The reason we start out with worship on Wednesday and Sunday is so we can come in and leave all that baggage, all those burdens at the door, and say, you know what, for the next hour, next hour and a half, I'm going to come in and praise God for who he is. And I'm not going to focus on what's going wrong in my life, but just praise Him. And I'm also going to come in here and hopefully have godly fellowship, hopefully hear godly teaching, and hopefully the Spirit will lead and move to take me deeper in my walk with the Lord. So after hearing what He does, the whole result of this should be verse 13. We just want to praise Him. I mean, if you stop and think about what Christ has done, that He has pulled you out of the prison of sin, He's brought you out of the darkness of life, He takes care of you like a shepherd taking care of sheep, He takes you deeper in Him, there's a blessing of this inheritance of heaven, why wouldn't we want to praise Him? Why wouldn't we want to say, Lord, You have so changed my life, I want to go out and tell everybody else about You. Because this is what He does, so this is what we want to do. Here's the problem, this is what I love about the Bible. The Bible is so honest. Because you could really end this chapter after verse 13 and really walk away saying, oh, isn't that great? Look at what Jesus does, so let's end with praise. You know, we could have the worship team come back up and let's sing some praise songs and really just focus on Christ. Well, problem is, Israel decides they want to speak in this chapter now. The Jews have something to say. Verse 14, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Now, let's be honest, how many of us have ever thought that? Maybe some of you tonight are saying, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, praise God. You know what's going on in my life right now? i got nothing to praise Him for. Maybe you're the ones thinking, yeah, God's forsaken me. You're finally saying, okay, now this message is getting real. I feel forsaken. This is what I run into a lot. I'll sit here and I'll tell people, oh, my God loves you. God's going to get you through this. And they sit there and they say, yeah, right. They feel forsaken by the Lord. So what's the answer to that? Look at verse 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child 
and not have compassion on the son of her womb. Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Isn't that a blessing to know God never forgets you? You're never left. Now Satan wants to make you feel left out. Satan wants to make you feel forgotten. Satan wants to make you feel like in a group of hundreds of people at church, you're not welcome, you're not wanted. Satan wants you to feel like of the body of Christ, that you don't have a role in it, you don't have a purpose, you don't have anything. That's what Satan wants to do. God wants to say, I will never forget you. I'm always there for you. Now, we either believe that or we don't. One of the things that we're really trying to instill into the boys is Jesus is there to help them through their problems. And the first verses they memorized was Matthew 10.31. Jesus said, don't be afraid. So any time at night where there is a scary noise or anything like that, Jesus said, don't be afraid. We got Judah, who's our second one. And he goes through the craziest phobias of any kid I've seen. Last summer, he was scared to death that there was a pig in his room. And there's, Judah, there's no pigs in your room. Yes, there's a pig. If there's a pig in your room, trust me, we'd know it. But Jesus said, don't be afraid. Now he's afraid of flies. So I'm trying to explain to him, black flies don't do anything wrong to you. Now the green flies, they could possibly bite you and hurt you, and horse flies stay away from. Black flies just try to eat your food. So if he's in the car and he sees a fly, he just freaks out until we find out if it's black or green. He just freaks out. Jesus said, don't be afraid. So we're trying to instill this into him. So we sent the boys to the room to clean their room. So Elias and Judah go. So they're not being real diligent about it. So we go on, go in there and say, okay, what's going on? And Elias is kind of worked up. Okay, Elias, why are you worked up? Can somebody come help me clean the room? You guys can clean the room. You made the mess. You guys can clean the room. And then Elias kind of gets bummed out. And I said, what's wrong? He goes, well... He goes, why won't Jesus help us clean the room? You said he'd always be there to help us. So how do you explain to a five-year-old about the physical body of Christ, present form, heaven, etc.? The whole point I'm trying to say is my five-year-old sometimes gets disappointed in God. Jesus has never come to help him clean the room. Now, some of you have been disappointed in God. Now, you may not admit it, but it didn't turn out the way you wanted. It didn't happen the way you thought. You got disappointed about this. You got worked up about this. Verse 14 you feel forgotten and forsaken by the Lord. Jesus comes and says, I can never forget you. Look at verse 16. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. One translation says, I have written your name on my hand. Now that's just a beautiful verse. We write stuff on our hands all the time, right, so we don't forget something. Your name is written on the hand of Christ, so he wouldn't forget you. Now, if you want to think your name is written in pen, that's fine. If you think want to think your name is written through the scarred hands of the cross, your name is on his hand in some way. So Jesus never forgets you. Isn't that powerful? When you feel left out, alone, and where's God, you are on the nail-scarred hands of Christ. He will never forget you. You've got to just love that when you stop and you look at this and you're like, Wow, Lord. You, you, you've never will forget me. Here's the thing, though. We go through tough times, and we say, okay, if Jesus never forgets me, what about this situation? What about this season in my life where this happened? What about this? And we focus on these seasons in life that sometimes go on for days, weeks, months, years, decades of hurt and pain, and we stop and say, Lord, where were you then? Well, look at verse 19. For your waste and desolate places in the land of your destruction, maybe that is you right now, waste and desolate and destruction, it will now even be too small for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you will have after you lost the others will say again in your ears, This place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. 
Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me, since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro? Who had brought these up? They were There I was, left alone, but these, where were they? Now what is it happening here? What God is saying is right now you're in a desolate place. He says, but there's going to come a time and a place where you're going to be so blessed with people and kids and youth that you're going to, these kids are going to come out and say in verse 20 that it's too small. There's not enough room. There's too much of a blessing here. There's too many people. And you're going to say in verse 21, what happened? I went from being desolate and barren and, and just destruction, and now there's this blessing overflowing. What happened? God says, I happened. Two verses I want you to jot down. We're running out of time. We can't turn there. Isaiah 61.3. Isaiah 61.3. It's a classic verse where God says, I will give you beauty for ashes. Some of you right now are in a very ashful situation. There's not much happiness. There's not much joy, God says. Beauty will come out of that. The other one is Joel 2.25. Joel 2.25, where God promises, I will restore to you the years the locust ate meaning that there is a time where the locusts come and eat up everything. All your joy, all your happiness, God says, I will restore that. I'm telling you right now, I have seen marriages on the brink of divorce falling apart where they said no way and has gone on for years. You look at them now, happy, joyful, and blessed in the Lord. What happened? God gave them beauty for ashes. God restored the year the locusts ate. I've seen people go through difficult times physically where they didn't think they were ever going to get back to quote-unquote normal. And now you look back, God gave him beauty for ashes. He restored the years the locusts ate. Now you may be saying, I'm in that space right now, and I don't see it. If God promised it, that means he promised it. You've got to trust. You're on the nail-scarred hands of Christ. Don't ever forget that. You've got to trust. Which leads us then to the next question. Verse 24. Once again, Israel trying to say something here. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of the righteous be delivered? What Israel is basically saying right here is, What's going to happen? Who's going to save us from this? Who's going to save us from this prey and captivity? You remember, in this time of Israel here, Isaiah's already prophesied, Assyria is going to come in 722. Babylon's coming in 586. You guys are going to be taken over. And so what Israel's saying is, who is strong enough to free us from this? Verse 25, but thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prayer of the terrible be delivered. Look at verse 25. I will contend with him who contends with you. Now, I like a little bit better translation. I believe it's the New Living Translation. It says something to the effect, I will fight him that fights you. Is that right? you got New Living, don't you, Kathy? Isn't that what it says? I will fight those who fight you. Isn't that nice to know when the enemy is picking on you spiritually? Christ has got your back. You, you don't have to fight it. You know, we have a responsibility to stay strong, stay pure, etc. But when push comes to shove, and Lord, who's going to deliver me from this? Lord, who's going to save me from this? God's going to save you. He's the one that stood up on the water and said, peace be still. I will fight those who fight you. And look at the end of verse 26. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God says, everybody will know it's me. I'm the one that saved you. I'm the one that got you through it. Like I said, Isaiah 49 is a great chapter of just the pure simplicity of my sin, my struggles, my defeats are all taken care of in Christ. You just got to love it. He sets us free. He takes us out of the prison of sin, the bondage of sin. He says, I'm your Savior. I'm your Redeemer. I'm the one that will fight for you. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ does.
Does anybody have any final questions, comments here? Yeah, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was forsaken for us, is what John was just saying there. Yeah, when he took the sin of the world on us, he was forsaken. So that way we wouldn't have to be. Good point. Anybody else have anything they want to say here before we close up?